Hello, my name is Chip Jacobs, and I am the author of Arroyo, a novel about Pasadena during construction of the Colorado Street Bridge in the progressive age of 1913. And I'm just absolutely delighted to be in conversation with Colleen Dunn-Bates, the publisher of Prospect Park Books, which is based in Pasadena and has produced some really sensational works over its 13 years of existence. How are you doing, Colleen? Great, Chip. Thanks. It's fun to be here. Uh, we get to talk about our, our hometown. That's true. So, uh, yeah, I guess I'm supposed to. I, so, yeah, I'm, I am the, uh, I've been a resident of Pasadena for almost 28 years now. I'm a Los Angeles native, and I did found, found Prospect Park Books 13 years ago, right here in Pasadena with a book. Uh, first book was called, um, still is called, Hometown Pasadena. So um, I, I do have, even though I was not born and raised here in Pasadena, like I believe you were, Chip, right? Weren't you born and raised here? I, I was. Uh, I'm a Huntington Hospital baby through and through. I'm St. Vincent's uh, over in L.A., so uh, a few key miles away. But as you and I both know, there is, a, there is something about being a true native born and raised here. So you're in a, um, a very special club in Pasadena, right? I, I definitely feel like that's the case. And there's just a um, really eye-popping number of excellent writers that live in town, not necessarily natives, but, I mean, you go from, like, in the area as well, you know, Janet Fitch, Fitch to Linda C. to Eric Schlosser, you know, we just have them coming and going, screenwriters, you know, your authors. I, I don't know. It's something – it must be in the water or something that just produces, you know, creative juice in this, in this area. Well, you know, I mean, actually, you know, it goes back to it goes back to what you write about in Arroyo in your book, in your novel, back to that the, the progressive era of early Pasadena, and um, I mean, really, it goes back even before. I think your your novel set in in 1913, or it starts there, right? And but but goes back earlier to the late 1800s. It, it was when Charles Fletcher Lummis first came here and, you know, he was a writer and, and editor and um, did a bit of publicity stunt to walk across the country and arrived here in, in, uh, on the Arroyo in uh, 1884. Um, and that, and he made a big deal about it. And then he founded a magazine and that I think gave a, a very early, when when Pasadena was a tiny outpost, it gave a very early literary credibility to the town. It did. Um, I uh, I relearned so much about him and actually put him in my book uh, because he would have these famous bohemian parties called noises at his place um, on the Arroyo, south of Pasadena city limits. But you know he had many of the denizens there. Uh, he he actually was sort of Los Angeles's first man of letters, if you think about it. And uh, he did walk from Ohio to L.A. to take a job at the L.A. Times. And he started off like in a conventional hat. And when he arrived in L.A., you know, months and months and months later, I think he had like a ki dead coyote skin around his neck, you know, and he was like a changed change man. I, I found, though, there were so many other East Coast writers that flocked here um, after him. And some had been scandalized by divorces on the East Coast. Others were like feminist writers uh, picking up the suffragette cause. And uh, it was, I, I felt like I was like eavesdropping back on time when I saw the collection of, you know, right brain folks, 
you know, Pasadena. Have you, have you noticed that? Oh yeah. And uh, you know, and, and I did not know this. So, so I, as I said, I grew up in Los Angeles and one of the reasons I, I landed up editing and publishing the book hometown Pasadena was because I was so astonished when I came to live here. And this sounds silly because I grew up in, in the LA neighborhood of Los Feliz, which is only about, I don't know, seven miles away. <laughs> but I had this bias about Pasadena. I, ha- I had thought of it as in a very narrow frame for most of my life because of the socioeconomic world that I grew up in, in Los Angeles, where, uh, and the, so the only people I knew from Pasadena were of the sort of um, stayed conservative white um, uh, suburban people who thought going to Hollywood was a ginormous ad- adventure. And it just seemed kind of stuffy and, you know, country clubby. And and I thought that's all Pasadena was. And then when we moved here, I realized it was so much richer and more diverse than I ever thought. And I really eventually ended up falling in love with it. And that, that was the genesis of the book. And partly it was seeing this, I didn't know anything about the history of I mean, you look at the early days of Caltech, and uh, we think of it—you know—now it's it's a science math institution, but it had it has literary credibility going way back, and it had the salons that were going on there a hundred years ago were fantastic, tied to that to to that. Um, so anyway, yes, it, it was. I had no idea about the depth of culture that's been here from the beginning and continues to this day. I uh, I grew up in Eastern Pasadena. <laughs> which didn't have sort of the West Pasadena cachet of wealth and privilege and, uh, you know, vapors of millionaire rows swirling about. Um, but um, you quickly learn today, and as I discovered in my research for my book, you know, what is a city but a collection of neighborhoods all united by the same zip code or boundary? And Pasadena was very balkanized and, and segregated uh, at the turn of the century, and I can make an argument it still was. You, you know, people get off the freeway when they come here to go to a restaurant or museum or a, a football game or something, and, you know, they're seeing the orange grove of our ancestors. But if they drove the length of orange grove, they would see every socioeconomic um, minority class um, configuration you could believe. Don't you think? That, you know, Orange Grove really tells it all. You just need to drive the whole darn length. Yeah, I never thought of that. I never thought that's that's a very good point. Uh, I live right off of Orange Grove, and um, that is completely true. <laughs> Thank you for that. Uh, yeah, it's not it's not the Wrigley Mansion all the way over. It is. Um, yeah, you're going to cut through uh, neighborhoods that are predominantly Latino, like right near mine, my neighborhood, um, and Armenian uh, neighborhoods that are pro- have a strong Armenian um, influence and food. And, uh, you know, yeah, you're right. That's very good, a very good point. And it's not a very big distance. Pasadena is a small city. We have the city itself is only about 160,000 people, something like that. So it's what most people call Pasadena or think of is actually larger than that uh, because it includes Altadena, which is technically where my office is at Prospect Park Books. I live in Pasadena. My office is in Altadena, but it's really only about a mile from my house. So it's the same thing. And then we have South Pasadena and San Marino and these communities that are really part of Pasadena, but technically are not. Well, but know, it's a small community. Yeah, it, it is. 
But Pasadena calls itself the crown of the valley. So we assume the greatness of those other cities. <laughs> and, um, you know, like it's even funny, people think the Huntington Library and Gardens is in Pasadena. That's not true. No, nope, you know? San Marino, right. And people Costin's right. ostrich farm was in Pasadena. Nope, that was South Pasadena. And um, one, one thing I do notice is when I tell people from Pasadena, and I do write about this in the book, in the second life of my character, there's like a Pasadena syndrome. And, you know, it, it's, it's nearly a medical condition characterized by glassy eyes, gaping mouth, and a dreamy expression. Like, oh, I, I love the city. I love going to the Norton or hitting one of your museums. And, you know, they, it's this idolization of a place they don't understand. Not that I understand it all, but um, I, I often contemplate is – is that a function of their, you know, seeing it, uh, you know, on TV or brief ventures on the weekend? Or is the area they live in so, I don't know, run down and humdrum, they're just looking for something romantic? Do you well, ever know? Yeah, people- I mean, I've seen, we have, uh, we have it for a small city, uh, we have an exceptional range of perks. <laughs> and we have our challenges and problems and always have. Uh, but, um I think one reason people fall in love with it is because of that. So I'm, I'm part of a, 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 a trade association of book publishers and we have an annual conference in various cities in the Western U S and partly because I'm involved in it uh, for the first time they came to, we had it at Pasadena at the Western Western a couple of years ago. And the book publishers just, they couldn't believe how great most, many of them had never been here or had been here very briefly they just couldn't believe how fantastic it was. I think there's still just a lot of people do not realize what we have here. Do you know, all, because of hometown Pasadena, I'm full of uh, annoying fun facts, one of which is um, we have more restaurants per capita than any city in the U.S., and yes, that includes New York City, and I verified this. It's true. Um, we have more nonprofits uh, than any city per capita in the U.S., it's a, this is a, a, a city that's very devoted to philanthropy and, and um, do-gooderism. <laughs> uh, and then, not necessarily a good thing, we have more private schools per capita than any city in the country. And that's, that's a challenge that we have here. Where do we rate on the white-collar criminals per capita? <laughs> that's a good one. Do you, do you, get, do you get into that in, in, in your novel? No. I, read no, it. I, I don't I have a white-collar criminal in my novel. Um, um, and also one thing I learned is, and partly due to the uh, abundancy of millionaires in the region, in 1913, Pasadena had more cars per capita than any city in the United States. Really? Huh. The, the Huntington Hotel was one of the first um, hotels that had a large dedicated garage. And there was like an area for chauffeurs to hang out and maybe even like sleep. You know, in this garage, which exactly is not exactly the healthiest thing to do amid all those car fumes. Um, Pasadena was absolutely car crazy, um, and I know that was a. Um, it was one of the reasons there was so much pressure to get the Colorado Street Bridge constructed because these people wanted to use their fancy Model T and limousines and brand new sleek, you know, Bearcats. They wanted to drive and, and make Los Angeles a reasonable, you know, distance away. And, you know, the, that bridge 
not only added to Pasadena's area in what I think is a rather shady way, but it, it, it did it did link the two great valleys, if you think about it, of Southern California, the San Fernando Valley and the San Gabriel Valley. But people just love cars here. And um, they, they even turn a noun into a verb. They called it automobiling. So um, it's, it's, it's no wonder that bridge meant everything. So I want to so I want to know more about the bridge because that's not something that I know as much about obviously as you do and what I know you've been fascinated with it for what your whole life probably what why what made you want to set an entire novel around a bridge um, that's an excellent question um, I think the bridge is a metaphor for Pasadena it's daring it's eye catching it's it. Um, uh, it's original. It's also a product of vanity um, secrets. Um, it, it definitely reflects the influence on the wealthy, on its design. And, you know, people don't realize, um, unless they really dig into the history, you know, the bridge is lower than the grade of Colorado Boulevard. It used to be called Colorado Street. And, um, you know, even though the even though the valley to the west is lower, the reason that it the reason that it's suspected it, it's built down, you know, maybe 30, 40 feet is because the wealthy didn't want to have their views impaired, right, on Millionaire's Row, which came towards the San Gabriel's. So from the very beginning, this is a political bridge. And I first got interested when I was a teenager going to Flint Ridge Prep. I had just got my driver's license. We were drinking and partying in the uh, under the arches of the adjacent Foothill Freeway Bridge, and I got into a car accident. And I remember looking at the back of my dad's Pontiac, you know, crumpled pieces of the car on the ground, and I just stared up at this Colorado Street Bridge, and it just did spark a curiosity in me. And of course, we all know nobody calls it the Colorado Street Bridge; people call it Suicide Bridge. And you know, this this idea of writing about the bridge just kind of kept working and working on my psyche. And I did a, a freelance story as I was working on my smog book about the bridge in 2004, and it generated a lot of response, and I never expected it. It was just a historical dive into this construction accident during the, during the building of the bridge that nobody talked about. You know, and, it, and to be honest, it infuriated me. The city gave absolutely no recognition of the men that died you know, on that bridge. And what it did is gave recognition to the contractor, to the council people called commissioners back then, you know, to the board of trade. That was the proto-chamber of commerce. And, and like everything, I have to get angry to find a subject. So <laughs> that, that's why. So you got mad. <laughs> I did get mad on behalf of dead guys. And believe it or not, I actually found a relative of one of the men that was killed in this accident. She worked for the Pasadena Police Department, if you can believe it. Wow. Yes. You know, it's, I mean, just this morning uh, in, in the new local news this morning, there was yet another story about, uh, about the bridge. I don't actually call it suicide bridge. I, uh, because I don't like to glamorize that. Uh, but um, sure. you know, it's, as you know, it's been a, a big issue in, in the last year uh, because of uh, attempts to uh, block people from jumping. Cause it, there, there's unfortunately been a, an increase, uh, increased number of suicides in the last couple of years. So, uh, and it's controversial about because it is aesthetically a very beautiful, pleasing bridge, 
and so how to and historic and how to put up blockades without ruining the visual lines but yet helping save lives is a big challenge they're going through right now and you just underscored one of the you know one of the sub things of, of my novel which is this tension between beauty and you know prioritizing human beings and so which is it which way do you go um, it, it was it took 25 years really for the city to do anything about the suicides off the bridge and it took this spectacular ghastly incident where a mother threw her baby over the side of the bridge and then jumped in an attempted murder suicide for them to do anything to put up any barriers and the rumors were that um, uh, Randolph Hearst even offered to put pony up money and um, for a barrier and the city refused and uh, when I wrote the book I didn't want to make it about suicide and death what I wanted to do was explain and, and try to ask the question, you know, is there a dark energy around this bridge because of the perception that was built with this perfect harmony, which is out of line with the truth? Did, did that somehow create, you know, I don't know, you know, a, uh, you know, a macabre alter, you know, macabre um, you know, alter persona for it? I mean, it, it's... To live in Pasadena, don't you think, is to know somebody who's been affected by that bridge? Oh, yeah, I, I, sure. Uh, yes, I would. And, and it's, it is a visual landmark and kind of a cultural one for, for, for everybody. So, so do you think, this is an interesting subject, do you think that an inanimate object can have a dark energy? Yes, I do. Um, do I think every object is? No, but... Um, I think there is something about this bridge, and as you know, all it takes is a few clicks of the keyboard, and you will find pages and pages about people that claim to have seen ghosts on the bridge or something paranormal. Uh, um, I don't think there. I think like UFO sightings, you know, ninety-five percent of them can be written off, but you know, when you see a pattern, it does make you wonder. And I do think there is an energy put off by this bridge. That seems to be a beehive for sad people um, that want to make a definitive statement as they transition to their next life uh, um, and for spirits. And, you know, I don't normally go for that type of thing. I, I'm, uh, you know, I believe in science and think it can coexist with your faith. And I don't know. There's, you know, I think of the bridge as, as a very, you know, benevolent kind of our, our concrete grand dame of Pasadena. You can't deny there is a alter ego to it, and um, I don't know. What do you think? Do you think do you think inanimate objects can can have some human qualities or or ways? Uh, no, no, I don't really. I'm kind of a cold hard realist, but I do know I do agree with you that it does affect, and especially the people who live around it and then see it every day. My, my one of my brothers and his family live on the San Rafael neighborhood, which is the neighborhood. Uh, of old neighborhood just to the west of the bridge. The, the one that connects, I mean, the bridge connects the very western part of Pasadena, for people who don't know Pasadena, and um, right. the central part of the city. And uh, so the I know my niece was uh, was working for me for a little while ago. This was about two years ago, and she was living at home, and you know, a young college graduate, and this was back when this was when there was that whole spate of people jumping. It was really disturbing for she was she was trying to find ways to not even drive there because she had seen mm -hmm. more than once just on her you know going out 
somebody standing and, and with then police arriving and trying to talk somebody off of jumping. And so it, it was it was messing with her, you know. It's, if you see that and you're just in your own neighborhood, that's pretty intense. It is. And, I, you know, Colleen, I, it's such a sensitive subject. And I wrestled with how to bring in the suicide bridge element to an otherwise historical novel, right? I mean, right. when the bridge was, was being built, nobody was jumping off it. There were deaths from a construction accident, which, by the way, nobody was prosecuted for, fined, penalized, or otherwise shamed. Um, you know, so actually in the back part of my book, I do have my characters arguing whether it's, um, you know, a moral and appropriate thing to be writing about this bridge in such a dark manner. You know, in a way, I was kind of beating up myself for even bringing this up. Um, and so, you know, that bridge has got a lot of secrets. You know, if it wasn't for that bridge accident, Pasadena might not have had the Western lands to which you just referred. Um, you know, it was called the San Rafael Heights and Linda Vista. That was unincorporated area and Los Angeles had its eye to grab it, right? But the, I mean, to be honest with you, and it, it's, it is historical fact, the city used that bridge accident as a pretext to annex those acreage, which of course are worth, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars today in property value. I live over there. So, I, you know, I couldn't believe it was, it was sort of like the Game of Thrones back then because everybody was trying to grab each other's territory. So the bridge, like I said, I just feel like it's a perfect metaphor for Pasadena. It all comes down to real estate, doesn't it? It always does. <laughs> that is the point of the realm here. Absolutely. It's always about the land. It's like yeah. McDonald's. People think it's a fast food empire written by Eric Schlosser, you know, the, who does live in this area. No, McDonald's is a land company. You know, that's what it's about. Yeah, and you look at, at the great movie Chinatown where, you know, it's water, but really what it is, it's the land over which the water it, it, it flows because if you don't have access to the land, you're not getting the water. Yeah. So it's, uh, yes. And actually, you know, I find it so ironic that the Colorado Street Bridge was inaugurated with great fanfare in the same year as the Owens Valley Aqueduct. Oh, oh, interesting. Ah. It did. It was sort of, you know, I'm, you know, you can get cynical about what happened and there was a cabal that stole vast amounts of the San Fernando Valley, you know, as this water now was coming from the high Sierras. Um, but I guess I just, I always like the more romantic, dreamy, idealistic stuff. And, you know, Pasadena in 1913, not only had writers, but it had these really big thinkers. You know, it had Thaddeus Slow, It had Charles Holder. It had men that were very successful in their careers trying to be philanthropic. Like the Throop Institute of Technology never would have been built without the generosity of, you know, kind of self-made guys that believed in a higher purpose. When Teddy Roosevelt, who was just enamored with Pasadena, came out, you know, he always was praising the Throop Institute. Um, so, um, you know, we, you know, I, for some reason, people came out here and wanted to pursue ambitions. And, I mean, it, it was arrogant and just ambitious and beautiful that somebody tried to put a giant telescope on top of Mount Wilson. You know, <laughs> but, I mean, if you just think about the effort to get something that huge up to that height, and it's remarkable that that, that got done. And then also you've had, you know, Thaddeus Lowe's railway into the clouds. 
I, I swear, I wish I was alive back then, not now. Well, and a lot as as we as we all later learned, there was a lot of folly um, in, in in that, and you know the the repeated attempts to develop uh, resorts and and other things in the San Gabriel um, in our local mountains, the San Gabriels. Which another fun fact is um, this is people don't believe this, but it is true. Our San Gabriels have the um, most the the greatest vertical uh, rise. Uh, difference of any mountain more than the Rockies mount, mountain range in you know uh, the, I guess in northern in North America I believe so really? they're not the highest but the, they go the most dramatically from zero to fifty you know they're very very steep so, uh, so you go from you know there there are the foothills are are not very foothilly and then you they suddenly shoot up the San Gabriels. So building on them and de- developing the railways and the resort hotels they d- and that they did back then, none of which survived because, you know, they, they would just, they would be wiped out and there'd be a heavy rainstorm would come and they'd get washed away. It's just too steep to handle anything. But they just kept trying and trying. So there was a, a determination, even in the face of, of um, disaster, to keep trying. There was. I also noticed this pattern. Like with Thaddeus Lowe's uh, Echo Mountain, they called it the White City in the Sky. I, I don't know if they would brand that today in the 2019 era, but uh, <laughs> using the word white. But um, it, it seems like what man created, mother's, Mother Nature often demolished. I mean, Thaddeus Lowe's beautiful dream was um, absolutely assaulted by fire, floods, lightning strikes, um, these weird elements that seem to conspire against it. It also happened to the Raymond Hotel, where it burned down in a flash on an Easter, East, Easter day, and then was rebuilt with Myron Hunt's help. Other hotels and beautiful objects seem just to be incinerated. And yet, you know, what happened? We generally rebuilt what, you know, fire or flood took down. So we did have a resilience as well. Yeah, yeah, I would think so. So you're, so you're, and you, you're, your character, your protagonist, is an inventor, right? So, is, did you create him in, in the in the spirit of those early inventors in Pasadena and and risk takers? Is that the idea? Absolutely. You know, um, I did in 1913. Pat, you know, um, obviously, electricity had been invented. Uh, Thomas Edison, and uh, that was becoming its own kind of octopus corporation, just like Standard Oil that Upton Sinclair took on. Um, but I wanted my uh, I wanted my uh, protagonist to be a Pasadena homer in his first life, who was building something of an iconoclastic nature, which was uh, a, um, a solar powered lamp. And Pasadena um, actually had a lot of solar powered water heaters on people's roofs back then, so they weren't fully buying into the electrical revolution, electricity revolution. So I did want my character to be both you know, a patriot to his hometown, like I am, but, you know, also going his own way. And so that's why I have solar power in there. And, you know, he first works at Costin's ostrich farm and Costin's was world famous, not only because it was producing feathers, which any respectable woman had to put on them somewhere on a hat or a boa, but it, it had solar generated water pumps that were feeding these really stupid birds, you know, 300 300-pound birds, you know, they drank a lot of water and had a lot of needs. So Costin was its own sort of, you know, um, revolutionary 
experiment in power. And all those things congealed in my mind. Wow. You, 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 that's a lot. You're ambitious <laughs> to, to weave it all together. Um, yeah, sometimes I felt like I bit off too much, that more than I could chew. You know, this was my first novel. Like you, I'm a U.S. proud USC Annenberg School of Communications graduate. You know, I took English classes at USC, but most of my, you know, focus was, you know, trying to be, trying to learn to be a reporter. And even though I am a book nerd and, and read a lot, you know, writing fiction, it's not easy. And it takes a lot of, you know, it, it's more perspiration than inspiration, I would say. And so this book was like, like after my seventh or eighth draft. Uh, yeah, I know you've been working on, and you've had, and you're you're a well published nonfiction author. You have, you know, you you're, you're no you're no stranger to uh, being a published author. But uh, this is uh, this is why I have, I'm like you. We we both were journalism school, and uh, this is why I have not written because I come from being a writer before I started the publishing company. I was a writer. Yes, um, you were, and I still write um, about a hundred thousand words of emails a week. Um, <laughs> and, and along with cover copy and press releases and things like that, right. but uh, but I but I, I t attempted one time to write fiction because you know I I was a, making a living as a writer and a nonfiction writer, a journalist, and you know oh you know it, it's 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 so similar. Oh no, it's not. It was very hard, and I realized I didn't have what it takes. So yes. my my novel for middle school kids is going to sitting in a drawer for where it will be for eternity. Well, so I admire you for taking this on. It's not. I know it's not easy. Well, I, I believe in reincarnation, it, it, as is reflected in my book. And so maybe maybe you'll come back and discover that draft in a in an old desk you buy in a garage sale or something. Maybe. <laughs> yeah. Except for it's. No, actually, it is printed out. It is actually printed out. I was going to say everything's digital now, but um, I would digitize that if I were you. You you could borrow my scanner if you need it. It's really good. Yeah. <laughs> I'm uh, I'm already working on my next novel. And well, yeah. So that was my question: Are you bitten by the bug? And are you going to stay in? Are you going to keep uh, swimming in the Pasadena pool? Are you? No, I'm going to keep swimming in the Pasadena pool because you know uh, there's so much to explore here, and I haven't really even dug into my old prep school experiences um, in La Cunada, uh, um into my days, you know, in the foothills of Pasadena. And um, I, I am working on my next novel, which is based on a true story of a dying friend who came to help me craft an apology letter to the most bullied uh, student at our at our old school. And um, it's going to have like this book, you know, Pasadena that you've never learned about. It's going to, you know, involve Caltech. It's going to have insane asylums. It's going to have, you know, um, you know, uh, it, it, you know, it's going to be about this area, but it's fundamentally about relationships and the power and obligation of forgiveness because I do, I do believe in that. So yeah, you know, I'm, I'm working on two new projects at the same time, but my heart is in fiction now. And I think because of my smart ass personality and just my love of, you know, creative writing, it, it just, it just where I want to, where I want to go. And I think my mom, who was the one that encouraged my writing, you know, wants to see me, wants to see me go well. And, you know, I, I feel an obligation to honor, you know, other people in my lineage that were artists. So I can't stop. What can I tell you? I just, you know, <laughs> the, most powerful, the most powerful words are we and next, you know, we can do this. What are you doing next? You know, I'm already, you know, thinking beyond the Colorado Street Bridge as much as I love her.
Well, I, I, I hope you I hope you give her at least a small cameo in the next one. Absolutely. Oh, oh how could I not? Yeah. Uh, yeah. I mean, there's so many stories about that bridge, and um, you know, I, uh, like I said, in high school, we discovered it was unpatrolled by the police. You could clamber up into the adjoining bridge next to her, and um, you could make your voice echo. And there was a, um, we all love Led Zeppelin, and there's a Led Zeppelin song called The Crunch. Um, and I couldn't put the lyrics into my book because of copyright uh, threats. But in this song called The Crunch, um, Robert Plant bebops at the end as, has anybody seen that bridge? And so we used to, we used to co-opt that statement and said, yes, we found our bridge. Just <laughs> the bridge. I'm, I'm dead serious. You know, we would bring, you know, somebody would, we didn't have boom boxes back in the late seventies, but somebody would bring a tape recorder and we would blast this song. And I think that got into my consciousness. I swear, Colleen. I mean, have you had experiences like that where something from your childhood sparks creativity later? Oh yeah, and adolescence in particular because it's so such a profound. Uh, I mean, yeah, the, the the one novel I the, the novel I wrote, um, which did my one of my sisters at the time was a third grade teacher, and she read it to her class every year for years and said they they liked it, but you know, went out. but it was based on my experience of growing up in LA with as a part of a big family, and I know nowadays kids, um, you know, the it, big families are considered freakish. They're just not. But in the world I grew up in, which was a Catholic school world, it was com- my family of six kids was completely normal and actually very average, very average, and not not lar- considered large at all. So I, I wrote it something about because it, that was such a profound thing for me gr- growing up, and I thought it would be fun to do. And it, it was also said in Pasadena, just because I raised my own children here in Pasadena, and it's. Um, but I think, yeah, you're right. Those I can hear that in you. The adolescence, those those moments are imprinted very deeply. I have one from the the same age. Uh, it's the obligatory rite of passage for all Southern Californian teenagers, which is to spend the night on the Rose Parade route. Um, and everybody I met from here has done had the same experience, which is kind of, well, in my case, it was spontaneous at a party on New Year's Eve when I was probably a junior in high school. Let's go to the Rose Parade and, you know, let's go, go camp out. So we did without any good camping gear, warm enough clothes. It was the coldest, most miserable night of my life. We didn't realize how cold Pasadena gets on December 31st at three o'clock in the morning. It's often 32 degrees. And, uh, uh, but it's a, it's a rite of passage that teenagers do. And so it's very burned into my memory of being on that parade route. Uh, I'm sure you, you did probably did it more than once as a true local. Um, I think that's, um, God, I'm so glad I'm going to, I'm so glad you mentioned that because I'm going to have to work that into my novel, uh, next novel. I did spend several nights on the Rose Parade route as like a high school student and we would stay up all night. You know, there would be your typical, you know, drinking and flirting with girls. And um, it was a very cooperative collegial situation. And there weren't fist fights or ambulances. And what I remember was the most ferocious marshmallow um, battles where people, kids on both sides of the street would throw marshmallows at each other until the street was just, it looked like it was covered in white fluff. <laughs> we would stay up all night and I remember one time unbeknownst to my parents we left the Rose Parade route myself and another prep student went to go see Cheap Trick do a New Year's Eve concert 
came back to the parade, got back there like at four o'clock in the morning. And then by the time the rose, the rose parade was the most incidental part of the whole experience, I, I went home and slept and then came back to watch USC win in the Rose Bowl. Yeah, <laughs> I fell asleep at halftime because, of course, I didn't, you know, you know, you sleep is the last thing. But, it, it, you know, when you get out there and, and you're tired and you try to, like, hit the hay, there's no sleeping. There's no rest there. It's cold. People are walking around you yelling. You know, the ground is not exactly forgiving. But it, it is. I'm so glad you mentioned that. It was a beautiful experience of childhood. Beautiful and awful at the same time. Exactly. And it definitely imprinted on me. So that's a very vivid, very vivid memory. I can still feel how cold I was that did night. You ever, did you ever, I mean, remember like there was places that sold hot chocolate? Did you ever get any of that? Or? No, I only went the one time. You know, like I said, I grew up in L.A. It was in a, I was a world away, so I only went that one time. And I didn't go back to the Rose Parade until... Uh, until I had young children of my own and, and lived here. Even after we moved here, I didn't go. I'm really not the biggest Rose Parade fan, to be honest. I, we, what we used to do every year is from where I live. In, I live in West Pasadena on the east flank of the Rose Bowl. We can walk down on New Year's Eve and watch the floats come up and get in position. And so that's what we would do instead of go to the parade. It's, and just that's pretty fun. Um, but I'm not so big. I'm not so keen on well, camping on a sidewalk anymore and also getting up at six in the morning to be crammed in with people. and you know. Especially after New Year's Eve. That, and, and that brings up, I guess we're, we're going to have to wrap up pretty soon, but that brings up something really interesting. You know, I, in my book, I, I do have the Rose Parade in it, but um, in the second life of my character, I focus on the Doodah Parade. Because the Doodah Parade is like the insurgent institution in Pasadena. It's the exactly, it's the anti-Rose Parade, you know, where the Rose Parade is very wholesome, corporate sponsored, super well choreographed. The Doodah Parade is chaotic and somewhat inappropriate and super entertaining. And but funny. Uh, no, it's, it's, it's fantastic. And I, all the stories behind it. In, in, in our new edition of Hometown Pasadena, we have an interview with Tom Cotson, who, is the, who runs it now as part of Lightbringer. And he, he bought the rights to the parade for $1. Wow. Um, and uh, and uh, because, you know, the guy who started it, it, it was anarchy from the beginning. And the whole point was to be, uh, be the opposite of what Pasadena is known for in terms of you know, the Valley Hunt Club, which founded the original, you know, the real Rose Parade, uh, where, you know, where it's tradition and uh, conservatism and, and, you know. Yeah. yeah. Um, but don't you, I mean, that, that is something I think is interesting. I feel like with the Rose Parade, the Rose Bowl, other landmarks, I feel like a Parisian, you know, with a guest in town said, hey, isn't it, isn't it just so spectacular to live by the Eiffel Tower? Or somebody in Egypt near the pyramids, or somebody you know in I don't know um, you know San Francisco, you know that's let's go to Fisherman's Wharf. You know, natives become extremely cavalier about what everybody else thinks is so special. And you know, to me, you know, what, how many times can you go to the Rose Parade? And so I just you know I, I just have to put on kind of a phony smile when people say, let's go. Visit this and that because we we grew up around these things and they just lost their 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 you know their glamour a bit, wouldn't you say? Oh yeah, yeah. Well, I know it's embarrassing. I mean, the the if you go to the Norton Simon Museum, for example, is one of the great small museums not in the country in the world, 
uh, art museums, that is. It's it's a jewel. And when you go there, uh, there you'll find pe- it's people from all around the world, Europeans galore. It's a it's a major small museum and, and an important destination. And I think I lived within, I more or less pretty much can walk there. I don't think I went for like 10 years because you just take for granted. Oh, I do that tomorrow. I'll do that later. It's just right in our own backyard. We don't even think about it. Uh, so, but so anytime it's when people come to town, then I, then I go to the Norton Simon and, or the Gamble house or the Huntington and all those things. And, uh, but the Colorado bridge to bring it back to your, your bridge, that's our everyday life. That's something we see every single day. And, that is, uh, that's a, that's a public icon. It's a public icon, and boy, you know, I spent a lot of time on it, writing my book and trying to look at little details, and you know, to you know, I, I could edit my novel until the end of time, just brushing in, the, uh, you know, scenery and sensory observations. Um, the bridge, I feel like, is in, in terrible disrepair, just dirty. The the old romantic lampposts are filthy. Um, it looks like it, it looks like a forgotten queen, you know, that needs a, a really good sprucing up. Um, but um, you know, I, it makes me wonder when I go to visit somebody in, in some town with these landmarks, you know, how, what, what's going through their mind when I said, "Hey, let's go check out," you know, the you know, Empire State Building, and people are you know thinking, "Oh, great, got to go back there again." Yeah, yeah. Nonetheless, it's. Um, I, I, I have this uh, burning desire in me to make my hometown proud. And I don't know why. You know, my, my grandparents um, first came to this area in 1920. They lived in Sierra Madre in 1920. And so I feel like the ghosts of them are looking over my shoulder. Yeah. <laughs> yes, I, I, I hear you. I've got a, I, I can't, I can hardly go anywhere without running into some distant relative because um, I've yeah, I mine goes back to uh, the uh, mid eighteen hundreds in um, uh, so not not here in Pasadena but in the southern in Southern California. So we're and everywhere. By the way, Colleen, just to wrap up, you know, I, you you did something pretty notable. You started a publishing house in Pasadena. You have the Colorado Street Bridge on the logo. Yes, uh, yes, we do. Yes, <laughs> yes, yeah. So you, you know, you part of the concrete queen ha- has, you know, infiltrated you, and I, I think it's fantastic. Oh, and, thank and you. It's worthwhile that Pasadena has a publisher. Here. It's a Pasadena folly, but you know, uh, uh, it had to be done. So, so I did it, and yeah, the the first book I published, uh, Hometown Pasadena, had um, it, now it's in a third edition, but back then the first edition. Had on the cover a, a painting. One of we also one of our our many outstanding artists here in Pasadena. We also have a very strong arts uh, fine arts culture. Is Kenton Nelson, and we I was fortunate enough for, to get his, uh, his permission to use one of his bridge paintings. He as you know he's done a number of paintings involving the the Colorado Bridge. So um, so the cover of that book has uh, uh, one of his bridge paintings, and that we 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 used that painting as the sort of model for a logo. So that's where my bridge logo came from. Well, I think it's iconic because the rose, after being used 50,000 times by different organizations, you know, becomes a little blasé. We might as well give the bow arts designers some some love by having the bridge, you know, used. So yeah. what are the some of the things you're most excited about coming out of the publishing house in the next year? Uh, well, I'm, it's hard to, to give, uh, 
I don't want to neglect any of my babies, but I, the one that's most germane to what we're talking about is uh, coming out in um, the spring, next spring, uh, and you're actually in the book. Um, it's called Read Me Los Angeles, Exploring LA's Book Culture, and it's a celebration of everything book-related in Los Angeles. Um, so I'm really excited about that because I, there, you know, the in much of the country, especially New York, and I think even San Francisco, thinks that LA does not have a book culture, that we're all about entertainment industry, and that is not true. We have a very vibrant book culture. We have a stronger independent bookstore scene than New York has, for example, because the rents in New York have, have made book, having bookstores in Manhattan uh, not very viable anymore. Uh, we have excellent bookstores. We have a huge number of, of very, very talented writers in the greater LA area, by, which of course includes Pasadena. And we have a, a great both history of, of uh, wonderful writers. So anyway, I'm really excited about that. Um, and uh, I think that's going to be a, a lot of fun. Wait, Colleen, people in New York and the East Coast make mistakes in their perceptions of Los Angeles? Well, never the New York Times. They always get it right, don't they? Oh, my God. When I was working on my smog book and I was reading accounts from East – you know, the intellectual elite, the, you know, the Ivy League elite, the cognoscenti bag there. I mean, it, it was appalling to see what they were saying about Los Angeles. And they were almost um, implying that Los Angeles deserved air pollution because we're such a vain, hollow conception. Um, um, actually, Charles Holder, who started, who co-founded the Rose Parade, he made a famous quote about about this event saying, you know, while people in the East are freezing and shivering something to this effect, you know, we're, we have gorgeous weather and a cathartic climate. Let's celebrate it. And part of it was to poke that misperception of Los, uh, of Los Angeles on the East right in the eye. You know, so Charles Holder did give it to him. And uh, I thought it was very funny. So um, anyway, well, um, Good luck to that book. It sounds fantastic. Um, keep up the great work, and um, you know we'll see we'll see you on the literary hustling. Colleen Dunbates, there. Thank you for your time, and uh, keep writing and pull that novel out of the desk. <laughs> All right. Thank you. Thanks for the inspiration, Chip. Good All talking right. to you.